Would you join me as we continue our series in Grace for Anxiety? Grace for Anxiety. This will be the last of our uh, sermons in this series. And uh, I want to remind you that uh, I'm using the word anxiety as the feelings of uncertainty. Those moments when something that we value is being threatened and we feel anxious. I believe that anxiety is a very normal experience in our abnormal world. We do not live in the world that God created uh, for us to enjoy. We live in the world that God created and we messed it up through our sin and then God cursed it because of our sin. So this is abnormal and in this kind of an abnormal threatening environment, we can experience or we can expect to experience anxiety. In fact, our text last week uh, reminded us that uh, there's going to be multiple opportunities, more and more opportunities for us to feel anxious. Uh, these, uh, these experiences are not going away, and uh, we need to learn to process our anxiety with the Lord. And so uh, remember that we, we experience anxiety when something we value is being threatened. And I think that's a very important recognition. Uh, if you don't value something, it doesn't create anxiety if it's being threatened. And that's a key point for you to analyze. Have I overvalued something? Have I overestimated its worth? Has it become a treasure in my life that is now calling, causing me no longer to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, but to seek what am I going to wear, what am I going to eat, um, to, to seek how am I going to store up my wealth and feel secure? Um, your value system is what calibrates your anxiety, your response to a threat. Um, my response is calibrated by my worldview. And that's your value system. That's your view of yourself, God, and others, your view of the threat that you're facing. Very important to remember that as you start to look at your own anxiety and do the heart work that God wants you to do and that God wants to do with you, uh, is to remember, I've got a value system, and that's at the root of my anxiety. Um, all of this uh, is accompanied by our own distortion. Remember, we wear the glasses of our sin nature, and that distorts our view of self, God, and others. It distorts our value system. It distorts the threats that we face. Um, that distortion is critical to understand as you do that hard work. S to start remembering I'm probably not seeing clearly in this moment. So important to have the body of Christ around you when you're feeling anxiety so that they can help you see clearly or see what they don't see, just like Elisha and his servant. His servant couldn't see the armies of God. Elisha could. Uh, you need people in your life who see the gifts and the giver, who see the goodness of God, who see the threat that you're facing and can can speak into your life as to whether or not that threat uh, is, how serious it is if you've overestimated the threat or if you're valuing something that you shouldn't value, or if that value that you should have has taken on a life of its own. And then last week, again, we covered or we considered that God is calling us to bring our anxiety uh, to him, to work through that with him, because he doesn't just want to answer our requests. He wants to bring the peace of God. Uh, the peace of Christ into our lives. So Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit 
you may abound in hope. Now, I just took a verse and I'm going to use it. And so before I do that, it's very important whenever we study the scripture that we keep verses in their context. And so I need to spend a moment just helping you understand where this verse fits in the letter to the Romans. We don't want to take verses out of their context and misuse them. Um, so let's think about that very quickly. Number one, Paul is writing to the Roman church, which is largely a Gentile population. The Gentile believers outnumber the Jewish believers. If Paul was writing a church in Jerusalem, which James probably had a larger Jewish population in his church than the Apostle Paul did, um, there would be it, it would feel differently. Um, but the, the Apostle is writing to the Roman church. There are a larger number of Gentile believers there. The Jewish believers were struggling with their Gentile brethren. Uh, the Jewish believers had placed their hope in their connection to Abraham and their obedience to the law of God, rather than God's merciful provision in Christ. And this comes out in chapters 1, 2, and 3, when the Apostle Paul is addressing people who were leading on their righteousness, their obedience to the law, and chapter 4, their connection to Abraham, instead of leaning on the person and the finished work of Christ. Literally, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. And so in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, Paul is addressing largely the Jewish believers who had put their hope in their connection to Abraham and their obedience to the law. Now, he doesn't exclude the Gentile Christians. They need to hear this too. And so chapter 4, chapter 5, he expounds the idea of justification by faith. Uh, chapter 6, our sanctification, how justification plays out. Uh, in our lives, through sanctification, not yielding ourselves. These chapters definitely could be addressing the Gentile population who might have been a little bit more free with God's grace than they should have been. Uh, and then Romans 7 and 8, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the, the fulfillment of the law in chapter 7 through Christ. And then uh, you know, chapter 8, no condemnation. The Holy Spirit is transforming us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then chapters 9, 10, and 11 really are addressing that issue between the Jew and the Gentile and who's in the family of God and who has God chosen to call to himself. And then chapter 12, you know that chapter, love one another. Uh, chapter 13, the great chapter on God's uh, government and how we respond to government. And then chapter 14, we are launched into, we're brought into the conflict between Jew and Gentile. And Paul addresses it head-on and tries to help them both know how to respond to each other. And then we come to chapter 15, and that's where we are in our text. And so in that context, where Jewish believers are hoping in their connection with Abraham, building their lives around that connection and around their obedience uh, to God's law, rather than God's merciful provision in Christ. And the Gentile believer's brand of Christianity, if you want to use that terminology, uh, which was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, threatened the Jewish identity. Um, not practicing uh, rituals, not uh, cleansing rituals and worship rituals and uh, food rituals, 
not practicing these things, which the Gentile believers were not, uh, created a real threat to something that the Jewish believers had built their identity around. And so it's in that context that Paul writes to them both and says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now I think the lesson for us today is that as we learn to hope and trust in God, our souls find rest and security abounds. Let me say it again. As we learn to hope and trust in God, our souls find rest and security abounds. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But the, the, the Christians were divided. They, the Jewish Christians were at great unrest. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 1 and verse 11? I want to come and strengthen you. And that word strengthen is the word to establish, to lay a solid foundation. And then he says it again in chapter 16. And uh, verse 26, where he says, now to him who is uh, 25, I'm sorry, verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you, uh, to establish you. It's the same word. These are the bookends of Romans, Romans 1.11, Romans uh, 16 and verse 25. Paul's writing to establish them, to give them a solid foundation from which to live. And so as we learn to hope and trust in God, for our salvation, for life, our souls find rest and security abounds. Now, number one, only God can provide for your soul. Um, we are enfleshed souls, without a doubt. You have a body and you have a soul, and these two things are intertwined in ways that you probably haven't thought of and I probably haven't thought of as well. God is the one who created us to be in relationship with him, and it's in that relationship that our souls are cared for, that our bodies are cared for, but that our souls are cared for. And I think this text is very clear in saying that God is the only one who can, who can care for your soul. Look at these words. Uh, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. Both of these are things that you want. We'll explain them in a second. Both of these things are soul-related things, inner man-related things, and both of these are something that God has that he can fill you with, that he can give you. They are both gifts from God the Father. Notice what he says next, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability, okay, the, the, the dunamis or the dynamite, that's the word, the, the power, the explosive enabling power of the Holy Spirit, that you can abound in hope. Abundant hope is something the Spirit enables you to have. He has it. He's able to give it to you. Um, all of this comes to us through Jesus Christ. This has been Paul's main point throughout the book. You don't look to Abraham. You don't look to the law or your obedience. You look to Jesus. He is the one who has provided for you your salvation. And so, these gifts, these, I won't say ancillary gifts, but these extra gifts, these graces from God, uh, are something that come to us from God through Jesus Christ. Because we're united to Christ, God provides these gifts. And I, I want to make this point that caring for your soul, the care your soul needs, will not come from shopping. 
It will not come from food. It will not come from Netflix. It will not come from alcohol, from a vacation. Oh, these things are nice, and they help, certainly. It would be really nice right now to hop on a plane, go to an exotic island, and just imagine being there. And certainly that's going to take some of the anxiety away, as long as you're there. But then you're going to have to get back on the plane and come back home to Pandemicville. And so it's a temporary fix. What God wants to provide for you is something more permanent and lasting. And so my question for you, as you've been going through this pandemic and if we, as we've been studying this series on anxiety, is maybe, just consider, that maybe you've been looking in the wrong place to find rest for your soul. Maybe you've been looking in the wrong place. And if you're looking in the wrong place, that means that you've attached value to things that you're hoping will deliver for you. You're attaching hope that Netflix, if you crash wash an entire season of Alias, that it will, it will minister to you. My friends, it won't. But I'm here to tell you, God will. So maybe we've been looking in the wrong place. And I would encourage you, instead of uh, binge-watching some Netflix, or instead of getting on Amazon so that you have that package coming on a regular basis, um, and you just, you're distracted, uh, get in your Bibles. Open them up. Spend time with the Lord in prayer. Study a book of the Bible, whether with one of our Bible studies that are going on, or just on your own and see the Lord minister to you and provide what you're looking for, probably without even knowing it. Number two, God provides grace for your soul. Now, we use the term grace kind of loosely. It is literally the gifts of God. It is the things that God gives us. We typically talk about undeserved merit, or uh, God's favor. Let's be real specific. These are things that come to us from the Father, through the Son, through Jesus. Uh, he is the gift giver, and uh, he has things that he wants to bless us with. Uh, help in time of need, Hebrews 14, 16. Uh, here in this passage, joy, peace, and hope. Now let's look at these real quick. What is joy? What is this gift that God wants to give us? Uh, some of the dictionaries that you can look at will say that joy is gladness or delight. Gladness or delight. Now, God wants to give you delight. And notice that there are no circumstances attached to that. Paul often writes from prison. And yet, what is he doing in prison? He's filled with joy. He's rejoicing. He and the other uh, company are singing. How does that happen? Well, he got this from God. Now, Paul didn't gin up joy. Uh, because he's delighting in the Lord, he's filled with joy. And folks, this is why James can write his audience, his congregation, and say, count it all joy when you encounter tr various trials. 
James, my circumstances are horrible. And his audience's circumstances were horrible. They literally had to pull up everything they could carry, get out of Jerusalem as fast as they could because Rome was coming to destroy them. And so they had to go start businesses in other parts of the country. They had to travel. They had to leave their, their belongings, leave their homes, leave their farms, and try and start over. And it's in that context that James says, count it joy. He's not telling them that their circumstances are good, that their circumstances are enjoyable. He's saying that you can find delight in the midst of hardship because of what God is doing and ultimately because of God. God gives us joy in, even in the midst of sorrow, the scripture says. And so joy is something that God can provide for your soul. Secondly, peace. And I, I love this word. Um, in the Old Testament, they usually use the word shalom, which is more than just the absence of conflict. It carries the idea of rest for your soul. Same thing with this word in the New Testament. The word peace here is literally freedom from worry or rest for your soul or a quiet soul. I love that, that imagery. I had a mentor who wrote a book about having a noisy soul, and I love the imagery of a quiet soul. Uh, think about, and I think my mentor used this illustration, think about a child that uh, is, is still nursing, and it's rooting, it's hungry, it wants to feed, and then it's fed, and what happens next? Man, the, that moment of peace where that child is just lying in her mother's arms at rest, quiet, no more rooting. Folks, we are like rooting babies until the Lord comes and gives us rest for our souls. And I, I want you to know that rest in your soul that God can provide for you. He's the only one who can, um, but he can provide a quiet soul. And I think most of us live with pretty noisy souls. I think politics, I think uh, the uncertainty economically, I think our children, all of this can create a very noisy soul for us so that it's hard to go to sleep. It's hard to be in the moment enjoying the gifts of God. Um, it's hard to be in the moment enjoying the people that we're with because our souls are noisy. It's like having a, uh, a hundred uh, apps open on your iPad. Uh, what happens? Well, your iPad starts to move slow and it starts to be bogged down. Folks, that's most of us right now. And God wants to quiet your soul and, uh, and has that, that gift for you if you pursue it in Christ. And then thirdly, hope. Now, hope is not, I hope so. I'm hoping that this will work out. I'm hoping that I will not get sick. That is not what hope means in the Bible. Hope means confidence in the future. I have confidence in my future. How can you have confidence in your future? Well, the Holy Spirit gives it to you. The Holy Spirit gives you confidence, security, a sense of security that I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I know who holds the future. I know who's already in the future, who has orchestrated my future. 
and he has orchestrated my past, and I've seen how that turned out. Now he's orchestrating my future, and I trust him. Now, this is what hope means, confidence in the future. Folks, these are things that God provides for you. He's the only one who can, but he can and has the ability to provide joy, peace, and hope, even in the midst of our anxiety. Third, in order for this to happen, God must be the object of your hope. God must be the object of your hope. There's confidence in the future because we have placed our hope on the right person. Jesus talks about this in his Sermon on the Mount. He talks about building your life on the sand or building your life on the rock. And this is kind of Paul's way of saying something very similar. Now let's look at the text. The text says, may the God of hope. Now notice those words. Notice the word of hope. Either it has, it has one of two possible meanings. It's either that hope is something that God possesses that he can give you, or it's that God is the object of our hope. God is either the source of hope or God is the object of our hope. Now, I believe it's the second of those, that when Paul says, may the God of hope He's not saying, may God, who has a bunch of hope, give it to you. He's saying, may God, who is the object of your hope, fill you. Now, why do I think that? Well, I think that's the thrust of the entire letter. I think Paul's letter to the Romans is about them not hoping in their obedience, not hoping in their ancestry, their patronage, but hoping in God. And so I think that's the message of the letter. How does Paul open the letter? He opens it, Romans 1.11, I want to come and I want to strengthen you. In Romans 16.27, I want uh, 16.25, I want to come and I want to strengthen you. Both of these words form the bookends of the book of Romans. Both of them have the idea of setting a solid foundation. I want to give you the rock foundation to build your life on. What is that? the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the foundation. That affects how we view ourselves, God, others. That affects how we view our valuables. That affects how we view the threats that we face. Who can separate us from the love of God? So the thrust of Paul's writing is to establish them in the gospel and to give them that foundation. And so God, in that, in that context, God is the object of their hope. Look at Romans 15 and verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Okay, so what's the context of chapter 15? Having hope by hoping in God. I think that fits very well with verse 13. The scriptures gives us confidence in our future. It gives us hope. But the scriptures direct us to hope in God. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in our text, you may abound in hope. You may abound in confidence in your future. Now the question becomes, 
How do I make God the object of my hope? Because folks, I, I really believe at the root of our anxiety is that we have put hope, confidence in the wrong thing. We have put confidence in the wrong people. We often put confidence in our elected leaders. And I'm 48, and hopefully I've learned my lesson not to do that. They're just people. They're just, you know, human. And they're going to look out for their own self-interest 99% of the time. I wish I, I was less uh, cynical about that, but we're people. Uh, we, you hear about Christian leaders who leave their faith, who declare that they are no longer believers. Uh, why are we surprised by that? I, I didn't put any hope in these people. Uh, I don't put any hope in myself. Uh, we're sinners saved by the grace of God, and it's only by the grace of God that I don't go down those dark paths. So we, we have put our hope in the wrong things. We have looked to other people, or we have looked to our careers, or we have looked to our retirement funds, or we have looked to our children. Oh my word, how many times do parents put their hope in their children? We've looked to the wrong things, and we've idolized them, we've cherished them, we've created value around them, and they have become, those things have become the objects of our hope. It's what we dream about. It's what we uh, talk about. It's what we fantasize about. It's, uh, it's what fills our heart with momentary pleasure and joy. Um, and when that's not the Lord, guess what happens? It always disappoints, and our hopes come crashing down. So the question becomes, how do I make God the object of my hope? Well, it shouldn't be a surprise that there's a path to that. Um, it is a path of the means of grace. All Scripture was written for our instruction that through the encouragement, uh, through the endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Uh, the means of grace, the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God, prayer, uh, the sacraments, uh, the, the body of Christ, all of the ordinances of Christ, our confession says, are means of grace to us. And so as you engage the Lord in prayer, as you engage the Lord in reading his word, what God starts to do is he starts to shift your hope from the things of this world to himself. Now, we would call that repentance and faith, turning from one thing and putting your hope on something else. And this is why the Apostle Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. I like the way the NIV translates that. It's, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust him. That's the emphasis. Uh, as you trust in the Lord, as you build spiritual muscles of faith, as you make God the object of your hope, that's when you will have joy and peace. That's when you will abound in a sense of confidence about your future, no matter what you're going to face. Because God is the object of your hope. He is the one that you have put your trust in, both for your salvation, for your eternity, but for your daily experience. So how do you do that? Through the means of grace, as God leads you to repentance and faith. To forsake the things of this world that you have overvalued, and to put your hope and your confidence in Him 
and on what's eternally valuable. Some applications. Number one, your valuables are the root of your anxiety. Whether, you, whether those valuables are appropriate or not, you need to look at those. You need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you see your valuables, to help you assess them so that you can either repent of them or you can say, nope, God, you said this is valuable and I should value it. And so I'm crying out to you to, uh, to bring peace into my life and to, uh, to help me with the, the threat this valuable is facing. Uh, what do you see when you are threatened? In those moments, man, our eyes so quickly turn from the Lord. You know, you uh, talking to somebody this week who lost their job, they were given a, a kind of an end date, you're going to work through the end of this month, and um, they just kept telling me, I'm looking to the rock. I'm looking to the one uh, who has held my life in his hand for 60 plus years. Uh, folks, when that person was threatened, what did they see? They saw the Lord in the midst. It's Elijah, uh, Elisha and his servant. Elisha saw the Lord. Elisha saw the armies of God. What do you see? when you are threatened or when a valuable of yours is threatened. Rejoice in your trials. Uh, God is building your faith. I didn't say rejoice in the circumstances. I didn't say rejoice in the suffering. Even Jesus despised the shame of his suffering. Even Jesus cried out for suffering to be removed. But there was something he could rejoice in. There's something you can rejoice in, and that is that God is at work. He is building your spiritual muscles of faith. And we, we do rejoice in that. And as you pursue the Lord, he can give you joy in the midst of your suffering. And then finally, God has grace for you. Now, as we end this series and as you begin to shift your hope to him and trust in him, I pray that you will uh, allow the Lord to shift your hope from the things of this world and that you will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And uh, I promise God has more for you uh, than you have ever imagined. God bless you. Let me pray for us. Father, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with joy and peace. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to abound in hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.